This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, December 1st. 2022. Welcome to December, a brand new month on the Guy Benson Show. Officially Christmas time on the program. Glad to have you all here. I'm Guy Benson. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday, those three hours. If you can't listen live, there's a podcast for that. It is free, it is on demand after the show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Lots of content and goodies there, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also get the podcast at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. Follow me personally on those platforms at Guy P. Benson. Line up today, Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend. He's going to be here later on in the hour. U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican Tennessee, in the next hour. And then Martha McCallum, our colleague, in our final hour, Looking forward to those conversations. Will, Marsha, and Martha on the show today. As we get going, something happened yesterday that is being reported on in the media as historic. And it is to a certain extent, obviously. The story is that Hakeem Jeffries, as expected, is the new Democratic leader in the House of Representatives. Speaker Pelosi is on her way out. In a matter of days, she will no longer be speaker. Her party will no longer control the House of Representatives. Someone else will have the gavel. Probably Kevin McCarthy, although they haven't locked down those votes yet on the Republican side. But the House minority Democrats will be led by Hakeem Jeffries, congressman from New York, New York City specifically. So both leaders in both houses of Congress, like the top dog for the Democrats in the House and the Senate, will both be New York City progressive Democrats, Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer, of course. And so I was looking at some of the coverage because behind closed doors, they had the vote among House Democrats. It was unanimous for Mr. Jeffries, who was the hand-selected successor to Pelosi. Not a single dissenter. Hakeem Jeffries it is. There was apparently a lot of loud cheering and applause In that private room, everyone on that Democratic side of the aisle, very excited about Hakeem Jeffries. And as I was reading some of the coverage from Wire Services, for example, the Associated Press, also reading in Reuters, I just scanned the articles wondering if they might mention certain things about Hakeem Jeffries that we have brought to your attention here on this show. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, rather. uh, They did not. The articles were laden with quotes from people about how historic it is because Hakeem Jeffries is black and it's the first time a black man is leading the Democratic Party in either chamber. And obviously that's part of the story. Congratulations to him. That's, you know, uh, he's, he's doing something no one has before. That's fine. But 
neither of these stories that were published and republished all over the country even hinted at Hakeem Jeffries' background as an election denier, a conspiracy theorist, and an institutional arsonist. And he's all of those things. Right? You would think, you would think, given the absolute obsession on the Democratic side of the aisle and within the news media, because that's all one and the same, they're part of the same group, sort of liberal Democrats, whether they wear a press badge or a congressional pin, they're on the same side. They have devoted so many column inches, virtual pixels, non-Fox cable segments, tweets and social media posts in recent years to election denial, threats to democracy, misinformation, and attacks against norms and institutions. Over and over and over again, they wring their hands about these deep, deep concerns that they have. Except when the concerns might bleed over into their tribe, into their camp, in which case they sort of gloss over it, barely mention it, or ignore it completely. So the Democrats have unanimously selected an election denier, conspiratorial guy as the next Democratic leader in the House of Representatives. And the main news stories about this decision and this choice by the Democrats have not mentioned at all his history of this denialism, which I thought I thought we had been reliably informed was tantamount to an attack on democracy and the republic itself. But no dice. First black person to ever do it. History made. That's the tone of the coverage. None of the election denial where he called, for example, Donald Trump an illegitimate president, illegitimately elected, a fake president. He put this all out in social media posts that are still up. He went after the Supreme Court saying that they were illegitimate, just burning down institutions and their credibility because he didn't like an outcome. It wasn't even the Dobbs outcome, by the way. It was a different case. This guy is deeply irresponsible in a lot of ways. Loose cannon, hothead, hyperpartisan, willing to say anything as long as it comports with his idea of his agenda and Democrats and lefty power. That's it. And I guess we're all just supposed to pretend like that paper trail doesn't exist. Because it's a Democrat, so they get a different set of rules. That's how it so often works with the press. Now, someone who's unwilling to play along is Mitch McConnell, Cocaine Mitch, the Senate Republican leader who gave a speech this morning kind of welcoming Hakeem Jeffries into congressional leadership. And he made sure, and I saw some reporters like, oh, wow, McConnell's saying these things about Jeffries. Yeah, because no one else will, apparently. You guys won't do it, reporters, journalists. So McConnell's forcing you to talk about it. Might not put it in your articles, your coverage, but at least he's out there saying it. This is all completely true. McConnell, earlier today, Senate floor cut 19. It has been one of the big unfortunate ironies of the past several years. Many of the same individuals and institutions on the political left who spent the years 2017 through 2020, yelling about the importance of norms and institutions have themselves not hesitated to undermine our institutions when they're unhappy 
with a given outcome. Just as an example, the newly elected incoming leader of House Democrats is a past election denier who basically said the 2016 election was, quote, illegitimate and suggested that we had a, quote, fake president. He's also mounted reckless attacks on our independent judiciary and said that justices he didn't like have, quote, zero legitimacy. That's all accurate. Should we stand by and hold our collective breath for a bunch of panicked columns, cable news segments, frantic tweets about the assault on our democracy, the undermining of institutions? Oh, we shouldn't. Of course we shouldn't. It's not happening. Not going to come. Shows like this one, we'll talk about it a little bit. Mitch McConnell will raise that uncomfortable truth. I'll also remind you of another one since we're at it. The spokeswoman, the chief spokeswoman for the president of the United States, also an election truther, election denier. Denied the legitimacy of Trump's election in 2016. Denied the legitimacy of Brian Kemp's election in Georgia against Stacey Abrams in 2018. And what was the fallout from that election denial? She got promoted to one of the most high-profile jobs in the world for her trouble. It's nice. It must be nice to be a Democrat where you just have different rules that apply to you. You can kind of do and say, for the most part, whatever you want. The uh, holding truth to power thing, speaking truth to power, accountability, it's kind of a one-way racket for the most part. I mean, Corinne Jean-Pierre, I'm actually very glad she's in that position. She's so bad at the job. She might be a very nice person, right? If you met her out at a Christmas party or something, she might be lovely to talk to. I wouldn't be surprised at all. In terms of the actual job requirements, the job description, what it takes to do it effectively, she is profoundly ineffective at it, which I think is fitting given who her boss is. And I'm not exactly scrambling for someone better to take over that position. I don't want necessarily an effective person who's better at spinning less embarrassingly. They deserve exactly what they're getting. And, of course, it's going to be hard to extricate her from that position because of, just like with Hakeem Jeffries and the coverage around him, the history being made. As an LGBT immigrant woman of color, I mean, you're kind of bulletproof there. On the uh, woke spectrum, I don't know how you could ever lose a job, no matter how bad you are at it. So that's sort of what we're up against here in terms of the standards in the news media. Again, I find it remarkable, given the tone and tenor of so much political coverage and fraught concern trolling. And some of it's not even concern trolling. I think some of the concerns are real about what happened on January 6th and what led up to that moment and some of the dangerous things that have happened on the Republican side of the aisle. Right? It's not all just like a, a totally made-up, blown-up thing. There's like a, a legit worry there, series of worries. But when you see the same types of or similar types of very irresponsible behavior and rhetoric happening on the other side, It's just kind of treated like it doesn't really exist. That's how they roll. Oh, by the way, since I mentioned Georgia in 2018, Stacey Abrams, perhaps the most notorious 
lefty election denier of recent vintage. Although, I mean, Hillary Clinton has given her a run for her money, too, with all of her comments about the illegitimate election that she lost. Stacey Abrams was right up there, though. She finally lost so badly this year that she had to concede. That must have been really tough for her. That must have been very painful for Hillary Clinton to, or rather for Stacey Abrams in this case, although Hillary was on board for this too. Hillary was also playing into the denial about Georgia. They all did. All the big names in Democratic politics did it. Right? They just sort of have carte blanche to do and say whatever the hell they want, knowing that their friends in the media, for the most part, will let them get away with it. That's how it works. That's the racket. But they can do this stuff with impunity. Stacey Abrams finally, I guess, faced some accountability from the voters themselves who defeated her by, what, eight points? So she did what does not come easily to her, which is concede an election. I don't think she has still admitted that she lost the last one fair and square, which she did, back-to-back losses by Stacey Abrams. And she is now seeking to fail upward and be rewarded yet again by her party, by her coalition, for her conspiratorial mendacity. And the report is that she is now angling for a position on the FCC board. Right? The very powerful, influential board of governors and bureaucrats that regulate communication in this country. You'd have an unapologetic, inveterate liar, hyperpartisan, on that panel what could go wrong i guess that's the the next endeavor here for stacy abrams so we'll see if she gets it one of her fellow election deniers is now the chief spokeswoman for the president and another one of her fellow election deniers is now the highest ranking democrat in the house of representatives and as he achieves that position as he ascends to that role Most of the media covering that ascension are just eliding completely, turning a blind eye. Maybe some of them don't even know the things that he has said about previous elections, which you would think if a Republican had just been elected unanimously by a caucus who is a famous election denier with a bunch of crazy tweets with conspiracy theories – You'd think that, you know, maybe that might make it into the lead paragraph of the story about it, or at least somewhere in the article. Not so with Hakeem Jeffries. So it took Mitch Mitch McConnell to give the speech that he gave and for me to play it here on the air just for people to have some awareness of it. So consider it a public service announcement. The House Democrats have themselves a new leader, a left winger from New York City who's a conspiracy theorist, an election denier, and someone who is more than happy to take a blowtorch to governing institutions so long as he is unhappy with the ideological or political outcomes produced by those institutions. That's not me making some sort of assertion out of nowhere. It's his record. And he enters this position with that record, and we're at least here, we're not going to let him or you forget about it. That's the choice the Democrats have made. We're holding them to their standards. I know they hate that. Oh, well, those are the rules on the Guy Benson show, at least. With that, up on a break, let's take it. Just getting started on this Thursday. Welcome to December. It's the Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for listening. Bring you a Fox News alert here on a couple of stories that we're following. U.S. Senate in a series of votes right now on legislation trying to avert this rail strike that we've been talking about. The House passed a bill on a bipartisan basis yesterday. Senate working through a bunch of different votes right now. So it looks like they'll probably get something done, but we'll keep an eye on that. And then another interesting Fox News alert. The Supreme Court of the United States has left the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness scheme on hold. It was paused by a lower court. The Supreme Court now has said, yes, it will remain on pause and setting arguments on the constitutionality of this program at the high court for February of next year. Shannon Bream, our colleague, Fox News Sunday host, of course, and one of our top legal experts at the network, she says this move by the Supremes likely puts the decision into that late June 2023 timeline in terms of a ruling that would come out. So in my mind, a plainly illegal move on its face by the Biden administration has been put on hold by a lower court. That hold has been upheld for now by the U.S. Supreme Court. The Biden people at the White House said, we want the Supreme Court to take this case up. Well, they're going to, but not for a few more months, and then we'll wait more months after that for an actual decision. Meanwhile, the scheme will not be unfolding as we wait, which is good news. President Biden lacks the authority to do this the way that he has unilaterally by himself. That's not just my opinion. That's not just the opinion of many credible legal experts across the spectrum. It is also the opinion expressed in no uncertain terms by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last year when she was asked about this hypothetically. No, he can't do that. She said he doesn't have the power to do that. He did it anyway, basically daring anyone to stop him. And they're going to say, this is popular. Look at these right-wing judges ruining things. You can't do illegal things. If you want to go about a supposedly popular program, you can pass it through Congress. They haven't even tried. So oral arguments at the court coming up in February, a decision probably in the spring, and this power grab hit paused during that period, which is good news for now. The Guy Benson Show returns with Will Kane next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free after the show every day. And joining us now is Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend on Fox News Channel, also 
host of the Will Kane podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Will, great to have you back here. What's up, Guy Benson? I'm excited to get some of your takes on the following soundbite. LeBron James, uh, NBA star, is very annoyed with the media because I guess they haven't been asking him about a story he thinks they should obviously be asking him about, which is a controversy in a different sports league, the NFL. Here's what he said, chiding and scolding reporters in Cut 25. I got one question for you guys before you guys leave. I was thinking when I was on my way over here, I was wondering why I haven't gotten a question from you guys about the Jerry Jones forum. But when the Kyrie thing was going on, you guys were quick to ask us questions about that. When I watched Kyrie talk and he says, I know who I am, but I want to keep the same energy. We're talking about my people and the things that we've been through. And that Jerry Jones photo is one of those moments that our people, black people, have been through in America. All right, Will, so he's kind of angry here peeved with the news media that they didn't come rushing to him with cameras and microphones to ask him about Jerry Jones, who is the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, and this decades-old photo of him that has emerged. Can you just explain the context of what he's talking about first for people who don't know, and then we can talk about uh, LeBron's little tantrum here. Disappointed guy. The king is disappointed with his court. I don't know that I'd go so far as to say angry, but he is very, in the way a father is upset with his children, he is very disappointed. The context here is twofold. I'm sure your audience is familiar at some extent with the Kyrie Irving controversy where, and I don't even know that I have all the details nailed down, but Kyrie retweeted a video, a movie of some type that people have said is anti-Semitic, and then he didn't really apologize and wouldn't, I guess, give the media the response they thought it required and then Kyrie had really most of the media establishment and I can't remember how big the fallout went fall down upon him and I guess as part of that controversy around Kyrie questions were asked of LeBron secondarily the Washington Post reports last week there's this and by the way just briefly just just to clarify Kyrie Irving and that whole controversy was at least related to and involving an NBA player which is what LeBron also is. This is a player in LeBron's league, in his sport. And then you're about to talk about the Washington Post report in the NFL, a different sport. Correct. Um, And I'll tie them together, but I'll just add the detail, this one more important detail that that you didn't say there, which is Kyrie and LeBron were teammates, not just in the same sport, but they were teammates and at one point in life, friends. Now into the NFL, the background is that this report in the Washington Post shows a picture of Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys, in Little Rock, Arkansas, in, I believe, the 1950s. It's 66 years ago, where it is the integration of the school, and the young black kids who are going into school that day for the first time are meeting a mob of, it appears, angry white kids blocking their path into school. It's not an image we've seen, but we've seen the type of image in the past from actually other high, another school in Little Rock. In that photo, sort of in the background, not amongst the, I'd say, half a dozen you know, boys up front with angry scowls on their faces yelling at these black kids, is Jerry Jones, sort of um, rubbernecking, craning, 
craning his neck to see what's going on, watching his face showing no emotion. And from that, people have extrapolated a massive narrative that this explains why Jerry Jones has never hired black coaches or black head coach in the NFL, and it, it, it belies Jerry Jones' racism. It's also of note, I think, that Jerry Jones was 14 years old in this photo. So here's LeBron now saying, why do you guys ask me about Kyrie, but you don't ask me about Jerry Jones? Which is just insane and narcissistic guy. I mean, the details which you just said, one is in your sport, the NBA. One is a former teammate in Kyrie Irving. The other is in another sport, the NFL, and an incident that occurred 66 years ago. And I, I addressed this on Twitter this morning, guy. If you want to be a general social commentator, which he does, that's clear, and you want to chastise the public for not asking you your opinion on general social commentary, because now you want to go afield, right? You want to go in the NFL, then you should have to answer questions for the social unrest, the human rights abuses in China, where you make millions. Like if this yep. is the game you want to play, and you want to chunk rocks and be a social commentator. Be aware you live in a glass house, and you are profiting off of, from, within a regime that is one of the most oppressive in modern-day America, or modern-day in the globe in modern day. And I just want to come back to your point about China, which is one that you and I have talked about in the context of LeBron before. Before we do that, though, this Jerry Jones photo, I saw it. I watched with actual interest a segment that was on Twitter, a long, protracted rant from Stephen A. Smith, one of your former colleagues at ESPN, who is not afraid to you know, get into. He does not shy away from some racial topics from time to time. I think it's safe to say. And he said, I'm fond of Jerry Jones. We're friends. He thought this whole story is a low blow against Jerry Jones, doesn't prove anything. He was defending Jerry Jones. I know he got some blowback for that. But, I mean, it's not like there is a clear-cut story here either where it's like, oh, Jerry Jones clearly did something bad or racist many decades ago. And even Stephen A. Smith was making that point, I think, pretty well on ESPN's air. I just wonder what you think of, of what The Washington Post reported and the way that they reported it and what they were maybe trying to do with that report. Well, I, I okay, so I think – that Stephen A. is right on this, and I'm glad he and you acknowledge that he has some personal affection for Jerry Jones wrapped up in his analysis. But for, look, I did this at ESPN. What a, what a sick trait of a society to punish children for the sins of adults, okay? So in other words, let's find a 14-year-old, and this is a common practice, by the way, most often a sports star. He arrives in the NFL. Let's, let's dig back through his tweets and see what he said when he was 14 years old. Well, I mean – I think if you if that's the journalism you practice, you need to go ahead and open up your 14-year-old life all the way first to see that you were pure as the driven snow. But but second, you know, so Jerry Jones is 14 years old. The the crazy extrapolation guy. I mean, the, mm-hmm. so Jerry Jones is guilty of living in Arkansas in the 1950s. That's what that picture shows us. May, look, I don't know. Maybe there's more. Did Jerry run up to the front of the line and start shoving the black kids out of the school? I don't know. The still photo doesn't tell me the answer to that question. All I know is he was there and watching that day. And to say that this is somehow you know, relevant to the fact of his hiring choices, which by the way, he has Will McClay, who basically is a shadow GM, black guy for the Dallas Cowboys. But why the Cowboys haven't had a black head coach, it's just 
it's it's inanity, but it's dishonest. That's the thing. It's all a big lie. It's all big dishonest motivations. And by the way, since I've tweeted out, I've seen other people in sports media say, you're missing the point. The point is the media treats a situation with a black guy, Kyrie, one way and treats a situation with a white guy, Jerry Jones, another way, saying disproportionate focus and impact, more on Kyrie, less on Jerry Jones. Well, Kyrie's an adult who just did the problematic, potentially bigoted thing as a professional athlete right now. This is a context-free photo that tells us nothing about what was going on in Jerry Jones's mind or heart almost 70 years ago. I mean, that's not the same. It's it's all it's easy. It's easy logic. It's easy common sense. But if you live in this world, here's what I think. Okay, and I see these commentators, and I'd say it to their face. If you, I just gave you their rationale, right, guy, of why they think this story is important and it's different treatment in the media. And my response to that is, you're a racist. All you see a story through is the prism of race. Now, you think it's okay because you see things through a grievance race prism, but still, you only see things through the prism of race. You can't actually look at the facts like one happened 70 years ago and is unclear, and the other happens in the present tense and actually understand the disretreatment. You can only focus on the characters and their different skin color, which makes me think you're a racist. Back to LeBron here, and he's clearly, whether he's peeved or disappointed or, you know, putting on some show about, you know, why aren't you people asking me about this thing, this this Jerry Jones story? Uh, because, you know, I'm, I guess I'm fit to comment on anything that happened, quote, to our people, black people, and what we've been through in America. So obviously he wants to get up on his soapbox and pontificate about this, and he, he loves pontificating and going off on various social and political issues. He does it a lot. Sometimes he's done so in a half-cocked way where he's screwed up major details and embarrassed himself. But the point that you're making back to China and some of those, well, what, what, you know, this could be whataboutism. He wants to talk about this. He can choose what he wants to talk about. But you're right. He wants to be a general arbiter of moral rectitude and righteousness. He wants to be sort of a general political social commentator. And if he's worried about oppression or any of this stuff, he has signaled very clearly he does not want questions about China. He was uncomfortable with the questions about China in the past. He tried to get a guy who stood up for the demonstrators in Hong Kong fired for saying that publicly a few years ago and doesn't want any you know pushback on that whatsoever. But you'd better stick a microphone in his face to talk about this other thing. And I wonder, it's like, okay, LeBron, two questions. Number one, uh, what do you think of the Jerry Jones photo? Number two, do you stand with the people protesting against the Chinese Communist Party, I suspect he would love to answer one question and has a very serious financial incentive not to answer the second one. Okay, so and I think, the, and you're right, and the last thing you said is is the point that needs to be underlined and highlighted for those that disagree with Guy Benson or Will Kane. So you're right. I say this about China, and people say, oh, you're doing whataboutism. No, no, no. First of all, LeBron's doing whataboutism. So now we're accepting the game of whataboutism. He says, well, right. what right. about Good Jerry point. Jones? And I mean, okay, we're playing whataboutism. What about China? Right. Let's um, spin LeBron, the wheel. Let's the... spin the whatabout <laughs> wheel and yeah, see what comes up next, spinning. LeBron. <laughs> so, but, um, so the people respond, the defenders of LeBron respond in this way, guy. They go, um, 
well, why does he have to talk about something happening half a world away? He's talking about what happens in his own country to his own people, which I say two things. One, I don't like this conversation about my people, your people. It's like if we're doing people as defined by skin color, I think we're just – we're we, we put our – the wrong foot forward to start. Okay, that's. Yeah, I mean, this. I would. And by the way, just for the record, I would consider you my people, but not because you're white. How, why are you? Why am I your people then? Let's have well, to figure that out. Just because you know, because you're, you're a friend <laughs> and you work at Fox News and we're sports fans and we're you know center right. You're my people, but you know, I the, okay. the, you know not on that list is your skin color. You might be even pastier than I am. Although I'm not sure, I might win that one. Anyway, please go on. Oh, I don't like being pastier. I don't know. I have to figure that one out. Uh, it's winter time. Um, so. So, but the point is not okay. LeBron now has to answer for every human rights travesty across the world. Do, do people don't understand? Like LeBron is a billionaire, and a significant chunk of that is off of revenues he's receiving from China. Like Bingo. we didn't spin the wheel you talked about and land on random country and say, LeBron, do you have anything to say about the human rights abuses in Burma? No, we didn't do that. What we did is say, hey, what about this one country where you're making hundreds of millions of dollars? Like, mm-hmm. is that one important to you? And it's, by the way, I don't know where it ranks, but in you know world rankings of human rights abuses, it's it's a top fiver, LeBron. Got anything to say about that one? <laughs> and the answer is no, right? I mean, basically the answer is no. And so this is a game that he wants to play. He's in the middle of playing it. He's, in fact, demanding to play it. And I think he doesn't want it to go a certain direction. And, you know, he's probably mostly right that most of these sports journalists won't go there. Because they don't want to have him pissed off at them. They don't want to make an enemy of LeBron. They want him to like them. They want access. And they're also sort of, for the most part, on his team politically. So I think this sort of working the refs, so to speak, is probably going to be overall pretty successful. It's not like he's going to take questions from you or me. Well, that's why I said King is disappointed in his court. All those mm-hmm. people he's chastising, they will correct their own behavior. They have listened to the king speak. They are his minions. They will not challenge him. You know, so he's yeah, – I'm the, sure he The king hath spoken. The king hath spoken, yeah. and the, the orders are, are now clear, and I think a lot of them will probably march along to those orders. Quickly, Will Kane, before we let you go, I've seen some of your tweets. You've been tweeting a lot about the World Cup. Uh, are you a soccer fan? Are you going to, like, tell me that this is fun and exciting stuff? I'm, I'm, all, I'm all the way, yes. Now, oh. I will tell you – Come on, don't don't be I hate soccer guy guy. Um, I don't hate you know. it. It's just it's just so boring. Maybe you're not my people. Actually, come to think of it, because it's just <laughs> it's so it's so boring. Like this big hyped game between the U.S. and England, zero zero tie. Like I just can't get over how boring that exciting. is. Such an exciting zero zero game, though. Uh, and I'm serious, guy. I used I know to make fun are. of soccer. I used to make fun of soccer. I used to not understand a sport that, you know, ends up in a 0-0 tie. I'm a huge real football fan. You know this. But in the past six, seven, eight years, soccer has gone from something I mock to, I would say, basketball, soccer, soccer, basketball, rivaling for number two. And I will tell you why and how I got invested and I started learning about it. And it's because of my sons. They play. They play at a fairly high level. So I wanted to learn the game. And I started learning right, with that them. Makes sense. And not only that, I, I started watching. I learned about the history of those clubs and I loved it. And and, and look, I, I hate the I hate soccer guy. I also hate the soccer guy who thinks he's like a europhile and super into like something obscure and you can't have this. It's been the only thing I've had. I don't like that guy either. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I just tell you, I love soccer. I do. And yeah, that's I'm not fair. Here to tell you that's you fair. Need to love it. By the way, I also yeah. love working for USA. 
So whatever it may be, if the world I am rooting, I'm rooting for USA. We're on the same page there. I just I just personally my personal taste is that I prefer sports where like things happen. Right. That's that's my preference (laughs) is things happening in games. Uh, But that's just me. And you're entitled to your own opinion. You're mostly my people still. Will Kane, co-host Fox and Friends Weekend. Check out the Will Kane podcast, foxnewspodcast.com. Will, appreciate it. Let's talk again soon. Thanks, man. See you. And we'll be right back right after these messages. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show continues. Still to come, Blackburn and McCallum on the show. Marsha and Martha. Later on in today's program, GuyBensonShow.com, our website. This is an interesting story from FoxNews.com. Headline, L.A. County D.A. takes keen interest in John Legend car theft case. Prosecutor calls it insult to crime victims. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office has taken a special interest in a case in which singer John Legend almost had his luxury car stolen this week in what some prosecutors in the office are calling blatant special treatment for a high-profile supporter of District Attorney George Gascon. Quote, an attempted vehicle theft is a crime which George Gascon barely seems interested in prosecuting, said Deputy District Attorney John Lewin to Fox News Digital about his boss's priorities. Funny how that works, isn't it? We talk about different tiers of justice in this country. If you're a Hollywood celebrity, rich, progressive, outspoken liberal donor, I believe, to George Gascon, endorsed him publicly during the recall fight and everything. He's an ally politically. His car almost gets stolen, and Gascon's office is suddenly very interested. Keep us in the loop. We're all over this case. Whereas the average person almost getting their car stolen, Gascon has no interest in that sort of thing. He has very little interest in prosecuting a lot of crimes, as it turns out. But if you're John Legend... It's different. We open the hour with different rules. We end the hour with different rules for different people. Another hour coming up. Guy Benson Show. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour underway here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day at that website, GuyBensonShow.com, or at FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Always free, always on demand. Shoot us a follow on social media if you're active on Instagram or Twitter, at Guy Benson Show. Our handle's there. You can also follow me personally on both platforms, at Guy P. Benson. Joining us now, we are pleased to welcome back to the show, U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. And, Senator, great to have you back. I'll say Merry Christmas because it's now December. Merry Christmas. And a Merry Christmas to you. I hope it is a good one. I would like to start by playing you a soundbite. This was an exchange yesterday at the White House between my colleague here at Fox News, Peter Ducey, and the spokeswoman for President Biden, Corinne Jean-Pierre, talking about the border Bit of a head-scratcher here, Senator. Cut 15. Kevin McCarthy says that he invited President Biden down to the border. How does the president RSVP? (laughs) (laughs) 
to well, <laughs> we know we know the president's never been down to the border. The possible next speaker says that he wants him to go with him, so is he going to? So look, uh, he's been there, he's been to the border, uh, and since he took office when, when did he go to the border? Since he took office, the President Biden has been uh, taking action to fix our immigration system and secure our border. All right, Senator. So Corinne Jean-Pierre there said that President Biden has been to the border. Ducey followed up, when did he go? And we didn't get an answer there because just the fact of the matter is he hasn't been down there, not as president, not even as vice president. And I just find it very strange that they would just assert that Biden has been to the border when he hasn't been, as if that lie, A, isn't easily disprovable, and B, like the policies are what they are as well. And he hasn't seen it firsthand. Clearly, I just don't understand the dishonesty here. We have to realize, Guy, that what they have become so good and so slick at doing is telling a lie over and over and over. They never seek to disprove um, or to answer when someone seeks to disprove that lie. And they continue the pile on, and the mainstream media and social media helps them out. So they can get by with this. They are emboldened right now. They think that the American people believe them more than they believe Republicans because they did well from their vantage point in the state races. Uh, The Senate uh, Republicans did not take the Senate. They don't have a large majority in the House. So they think that they can get by with these untruths. But the fact that during his 50 years of public service, all this time in the Senate, Joe Biden never went to the southern border. It was not a priority with him. And then that clip that we've all seen of Jen Psaki saying, well, in 2008, he went down near the border. Well, I think it was someone said he went to El Paso. Um, yeah, he like drove but, near the border as a candidate right. for president or vice president in 2008. I mean, th- what, what on earth is that? That is no bearing on the border crisis that he's created now that really grasping at straws, he hasn't, I'll just repeat it, it's a fact. He has not been to the border as vice president or president. He was vice president for eight years. He's been president for almost two years. It's just a fact, Senator. That's You're correct. It is a fact. But they're going to continue to say this. Well, he's been to the border. Well, he's been to the border. And then they're going to use 2008 to make people look as if they are telling a lie when they challenge that. But here is what we do know is we are not going to get the issue with drugs, with human trafficking, with sex trafficking, the, our nation's security issues under control until we secure that southern border. And anyone can go talk to any sheriff, any police chief, any law enforcement officer in this country, and they will tell you that probably 80, 85 percent of the drugs in their counties are coming from the southern border. I did a telephone town hall last night, and a guy was talking about how he said the cartel is up in Detroit, and that's coming into our community. It was a community in East Tennessee. So people are aware of this, and I don't know how long the Democrats are going to be able to get by with this, 
But I will tell you that I'm glad that Elon Musk is saying he's going to make uh, public some of these emails and files that have dealt with sequestering information and keeping facts and information away from the American people. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's another issue that we've talked about this week. We'll probably ask Martha McCallum about it coming up in the next hour as well here on the show. But sticking just for a moment on the border crisis, number one, Senator, and I kind of understand that the White House wouldn't want to send the president down to the border and risk him seeing something that would look embarrassing for him based on the policies that he has put in place and the chaos and suffering and dysfunction that is being wrought down there. Maybe he doesn't want to see it firsthand. They don't want to risk some sort of bad optics or bad moment for him. But you would think maybe they could just have him go down there as a box-checking exercise. They kind of did it with Kamala Harris last year where he goes somewhere where it's not that bad and he can just say, "Okay, we went there, we saw it, yes, we're very concerned, and kind of get this talking point off the table at least a little bit. They're unwilling to even do that. And I think to me that is an admission, a tacit admission, that they realize how bad it is and they don't want to put him anywhere near it. To that point, our colleague here at Fox, Bill Malugin, tweeted this earlier this afternoon. Just listen to this. Per multiple Border Patrol sources, there were at least 73,000 known gotaways at the border in the month of November, representing a daily average of at least 2,400 illegal immigrants slipping past Border Patrol. There have been at least 137,000 known gotaways since October 1st, which is the start of the fiscal year. So, Senator, last month in, I guess, two months ago now, in October, there were more than 64,000 known gotaways, which is an astounding number. And in November, it went up even further, 73,000 known gotaways. I know people try to object to the term open borders. If you have pushing 150,000 known gotaways and God knows how many unknown gotaways entering the country without being apprehended across the southern border, I don't know what else you can say beside that the border is open. And the American people know that. Listen, every town's a border town, every state a border state, because of the impact of drugs and gangs and trafficking and the fact that people are seeing individuals in their community that have come illegally across the border. This is not a distant and faraway problem. This is a problem, Guy, that people are living with. They see it every day in their communities. They see the adverse effects of this every day in their communities. And the fact that you know, you, you think about the, the people that have been apprehended. The number now is 4.7 million since Biden took office. Now, think about that. In under two years, 4.7 million people have illegally crossed this border and have been apprehended. And then you mentioned the two categories that are very troubling, the known gotaways and the unknown gotaways. Now, in those that have been apprehended, we know that last year there were 98 terrorists that were apprehended. Now, what about the terrorists that are in the known or unknown gotaways? What about the gangs that try to be gotaways because they don't want to get apprehended? They have criminal records. They don't want to be sent back. 
They don't want to be imprisoned. They are coming here because they think they can make up a new name and kind of live in the shadows, go to a city that is a sanctuary city, work with one of the cartels who have set up shop in these big blue cities all across this country and sell drugs or be a part of a gang or be a trafficker, be a pimp. These are people that are coming to do those jobs. Yep. And one other point that I'll make on this before we move on to another subject, because we cover the border crisis quite a lot here on the show, and I've made the point before, but I'm just going to keep underscoring it over and over again. When you have people saying it's not true that the border's open because we have so many people encountered and detained every month and we'll get the November numbers at some point, it would stand to reason that the number will be even higher, another record-setting number in November. That's before Title 42 goes away, by the way, in the next couple of weeks. So it's just a complete mess down there. But they will literally point to the failure and the high record-smashing numbers of encounters and say, see, the border's not open because all these people are getting caught. The fact is a whole lot of those people, a large percentage of those people want to get caught. They cross the border illegally, walk into the country, then deliberately surrender themselves to U.S. authorities, seek out U.S. authorities sometimes to surrender themselves, get processed, and then released into the country, flown to different cities, bus to different cities. This is part of their plan to get to stay here indefinitely. And unfortunately, it's a successful plan. So that is not proof of a orderly or controlled border that is further proof of an open border that is ultimately confirmed by this stunning number of gotaways that we know of and then this unknown number of other gotaways as well to the point senator that you just made meanwhile there's this big major military spending bill that i know that you are objecting to not because you necessarily have a problem with a lot of the spending in it but there are some republicans saying so long as there is still a covid vaccine mandate in place For men and women in the military, this is a leverage point. We want to get rid of those types of mandates. Where are you coming down on this, and and how far are you willing to push on this issue? Yes, and we are trying to negotiate my amendment language into into the NDAA. That is currently being negotiated. And, Guy, what has happened, uh, being a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee this summer, as we were working on the NDAA, back in June I had the amendment that would say, look, you cannot fire people for not getting the COVID shot unless you have met your recruiting goals. Well, not any of our military divisions have met their recruiting and retention goals for the year. Yeah, the a lot Army of them are way short. Is, yeah, the Army is 15,000 short this year, and there'll be another 21,000 short next year. So we know that they need to keep these individuals. Many of these individuals have applied for a medical exemption because they've either had COVID or they have a family member who got the shot and had an adverse reaction, or maybe they have a sibling that got myocarditis after the shot, and the doctor has said, you might want to wait about this. So that is um, that is something that is is taking place. It's a concern with the military. We've also said, you know, if you're going to have somebody that applies for a medical or a religious exemption, 
then you need to allow them to continue with pay and benefits while that is being processed. And we are working on that language. It is right now on the negotiating table, and we're trying to get it into the bill so that we can protect our men and women in uniform, protect those families, protect these uh, individuals that raise their hand and say, we are here to protect this nation. We are willing to die for this nation. But it is unseemly that this administration would say, well, if you don't get the shot, then we're just going to say goodbye and we're going to fire you. Our nation needs these men and women to stay in the military. We have a voluntary force. These are people that have chosen to be of service to the community, and I'm going to fight for them all the way to the end. U.S. Senator Marshall Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, our guest on The Guy Benson Show, kicking off this middle hour on today's program. Senator, great to talk to you. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. And with that, let's step aside. Quick break. Right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thanks for listening. There is a widely shared Atlantic piece that is buzzing all over social media among journalists, among lefties, but I repeat myself, and among certain never-Trump, quote-unquote, Republicans and supposed conservatives. It's written by Mark Leibovich at The Atlantic, and it's about Ron DeSantis. And the overall theme of the piece is that once people get to know DeSantis better, they're not going to like him. The headline is, just wait until you get to know Ron DeSantis. People who haven't met him think he's a hot commodity. People who have met him aren't so sure. And one quote from the piece says, to sum it up, DeSantis is not a fun and convivial dude. He prefers to keep his earbuds in. His step away from the vehicle vibes are strong. Now, what's interesting to me is people on the left keep trying to find new ways to come after DeSantis. They've tried everything so far. This is the latest one, and they're all excitedly sharing it with each other. And look at this must-read piece. It's everywhere. And the never-Trumpers, like the hardcore never-Trumpers to the point that they're now Democrats, the fact that they're also gleefully sending this around, I think, again, is another tell. If you think that Donald Trump is a unique threat to the country and uniquely bad— You should not be actively, obviously rooting against perhaps one of the people best situated to supplant Donald Trump. And if you're doing that, then you probably don't actually believe the overwrought, overheated things you've been saying about Trump all along. And you're maybe kind of rooting for him to at least be the Republican nominee because you've got some interest in that happening. Your sort of grift, your niche requires Trump to remain front and center. So I think this is something of a combination of people showing us who they're afraid of again. They go after DeSantis all the time because they're afraid of him. They must be even more afraid of him politically after what happened last month in Florida. But again, I think it's so revealing of the people who supposedly are principled conservatives and Republicans who want to bring things back to sanity. And Trump is so awful. And then they're like, oh, yeah, but look at this Ron DeSantis. Couldn't he maybe be worse? Look at all these attacks on him. Ooh, maybe Trump can come up with some fun nicknames for him. I would just say this, having met DeSantis, spending time with him for hours at the governor's mansion a few months ago, he is not the most overly 
personally warm person you'll ever meet. He does not ooze fun. That is true. I think he has a different kind of charisma, not the Obama cool charisma, not the are you not entertained Trump chaos charisma, his own kind of charisma. He also gets things done. He fights smart and well. And I think it's also hard to make the case, even though I think he could probably maybe improve on some things and work on his sharper edges, wouldn't hurt. But it's hard to make the case that this is someone who won't be able to connect with voters, given his performance with a nearly 20-point victory unprecedented in the state of Florida, driven by deeply passionate support down there. But this is the latest line that they're pursuing. I think it's instructive. I think the DeSantis people should take it in stride. Maybe note some of the points that could be worthwhile. But I'm not sure it's the devastating takedown that some people are desperately rooting for it to be. Let's put it that way. The Guy Benson Show, back after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back here on the program halfway through today's show. Thank you so much for listening. I want to talk about a piece that I wrote earlier today at townhall.com where I'm political editor. The article, the commentary that I authored is about the Respect for Marriage Act, which I support. You may recall that A few months ago, there was a version of this bill that passed the House of Representatives. Pretty overwhelmingly, nearly 50 Republicans voted yes, along with all the Democrats. The exact number was 47. We mentioned this with Congressman Gallagher earlier in the week. He was a no at the time. He might be a yes when this bill comes back to the House. And it will ping back down to the House from the Senate because the U.S. Senate really sunk its teeth into this issue. There were bipartisan negotiations. They hammered out, I think, some very positive changes to improve a bill that I still supported in its original form, although less enthusiastically. I was calling for some changes, many of which have now been made. So the bill is better. I want to just walk through some of my thinking for all of you. And of course, if you're new to the program or don't already know this, Just as a disclosure, just to put cards on the table, I'm both gay and married. I came out about seven years ago publicly. I married my husband in 2019. Now, that shouldn't necessarily matter. I just want to put that out there for you, and you can do with that what you will. You might say, because I am very personally invested in this issue, maybe that is coloring my judgment or my analysis, perhaps, I just felt like it's the ethical thing to let you all know, and you can draw those conclusions and make those judgments yourself. I would also point out, as I did in my town hall piece today, that there have been other pieces of LGBT rights, in quotes, legislation that the Democrats have offered in recent months and years that I have opposed publicly because they constituted, in my mind, unacceptable overreach, or they invited or even encouraged persecution or abuses against people who are dissenters on this issue, which I don't think is the right thing in a pluralistic society. So just because Democrats sometimes package things up into a little legislative parcel 
and then they stamp a rainbow flag on it, although the rainbow flag keeps changing. Now it's got that weird triangle thing. It keeps getting uglier, actually. But they put the little emblem on it, and they put it down the conveyor about, like, here you go, LGBT rights. And it's usually pretty predictable who applauds and who objects. And in a number of these cases, I have objected because I think it's bad legislation that goes too far and has deleterious intended or unintended consequences. So I'm not just like an automatic salute because I'm not that type of gay individual where you just go along with whatever the hardcore activists say or else it's hateful bigotry or whatever. That's not what we do here. It's not how I approach these issues. But on this legislation, I'm a yes. So just taking a step back, I think it's pretty remarkable that 47 House Republicans voted for the original bill. In the U.S. Senate, there were 12 Republican senators, a dozen of them, who also voted yes, including a number of them who were involved in these negotiations to improve and enhance the bill. Twelve is not a huge number, but it is a substantial number. Out of the 50 sitting Republican senators right now. Right. It's approximately a quarter of the conference, just like we saw about a quarter of the House Republicans voting yes. That's not a big, huge percentage, obviously. But in terms of where things would have been even half a decade or a decade ago, this to me is progress. The American people are now pretty overwhelmingly in favor of gay marriage. The latest Gallup numbers out this year have that number at 71 percent support, a huge departure from lopsided opposition not that long ago. Even among self-identified Republican voters, now a thin, bare majority of Republican voters are in favor of legalized same-sex marriage. We have had a shift in our culture. I think a lot of that has to do with more gay and lesbian and bisexual people and other members of the LGBT community coming out, living their lives openly in society. In some of our cases, getting married. There are now hundreds of thousands of married gay couples in the United States. And I think just that visibility, that familiarity makes us less sort of super different or scary because people don't really know very many gay people. That's changing. And because of that, hearts and minds have been changing as well. I also give some credit on this, especially on the movement among Republicans, to former President Donald Trump. And if you're a regular listener, you know that I'm not necessarily a huge cheerleader of his all the time. I'm not excited about his presidential run in 2024. I've made that abundantly clear, and my guess is we'll probably be discussing it on and off for quite a while now. But I'm also not one of these unhinged anti-Trump critics who goes after him all the time on everything. He did a lot of very good things as president, as I've said before. And I think his signal to the party shortly after he won in 2016, he was asked about gay marriage. He said he was fine with it. It wasn't some big dramatic pronouncement. He was just like, oh, yeah, I'm cool with that. And I think that signaled that the old era of almost lockstep opposition to anything looking like gay marriage among Republicans, certainly elected Republicans in D.C., that was over. Trump was kind of giving a permission slip to some elected officials, but also to the base being like, this is not a big litmus test for us anymore. And the party is slowly but surely moving along with the rest of society on this. And I'm not saying that 
popularity equals rectitude. Just because you have a majority of people or a growing number of people agreeing with you doesn't mean that you are righteous or correct. That's not the argument. I'm just pointing out where things are moving culturally. And that, of course, has an impact on our politics in the Overton window of what is acceptable or plausible in our political realm as well. So Trump, I think, deserves some credit. Now, why specifically do I support this legislation? Because in my mind, it's not overreach. It's actually quite modest in scope. It is very reasonable in the way that they crafted it. And even though I think it is redundant and unnecessary, I'll explain that in a second, it still serves a couple useful purposes. Now, when I say it's modest in scope, what I mean by that is this is not a bill that makes same-sex marriage required to be legal in every state in a post-Obergefell hypothetical world, meaning the Supreme Court decision that made marriage for same-sex couples a constitutional right, what, seven years ago, which was a groundbreaking ruling. It is the law of the land. It applies right now. It is not going anywhere, in my opinion, and we'll get to more of that here in a second. And by the way, it is broadly supported, as I mentioned, by the public. But if, 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 under this hypothetical, I think, far-fetched scenario, Obergefell got overturned, what this bill, the Respect for Marriage Act, would do is not require every state to legalize the performance of same-sex weddings in their states. It would do this, however, as reported by CNN, quote, If the Supreme Court overturned Obergefell and previous state prohibitions on same-sex marriage came back into effect, the Respect for Marriage Act would require states and the federal government to respect marriages conducted in places where it is legal. So it's kind of like a reverse Defense of Marriage Act from 1996, just re-engineering it back in the other direction, like reverse engineering it, which to me is both constitutional, right? It passes constitutional muster, and it's not as heavy-handed as it could be, right? There was an opportunity here, if the Democrats had wanted to, to write a bill filled with poison pills, knowing full well that no Republicans or very few Republicans could actually go for it. Instead, they got together with Republicans and they wrote and crafted legislation that actually had a chance to pass, not make a point, not make the other side look bad, actually have a chance to pass. And, of course, now it has passed both chambers. It has to go back because it was amended, I say improved, in the Senate. It has to go back to the House. And I'm actually hopeful that more Republicans will be able to vote yes in the House because of the changes that were made in the Senate. And it's reasonable overall, I think. The Mormon Church, for instance, has endorsed this compromise. Every member of the Utah delegation, a very conservative delegation, has voted yes, except for Mike Lee. Senator Mike Lee, our friend, he offered an amendment that would have beefed up some of the religious liberty protections and expanded them. I actually would have been perfectly fine with that amendment being adopted. I think the fact that it wasn't adopted doesn't render it worthy of opposition overall on balance, in my opinion. He came to a different conclusion. He and I have talked about it. That's okay. There was one drafting error or inconsistency in the legislative language in the House version that at least led some critics to worry that there was a slight door cracked open for multi-partner marriages being legalized. 
And my position was, well, just clean that up. Clean up the language. Make it consistent. And that's an easy fix. And that is precisely what the Senate did here. And while there were virtually no serious religious liberty protections in the House version, which, again, I'll get to this in a second, I'm not sure that we're going to solve the religious liberty balancing issue in any piece of legislation on this. But at least what the Senate did was they injected a fair number of points and legislative verbiage that specifically offer protections for churches, for religious organizations, for religious nonprofits to not have to participate or risk being sued or taken to court because they don't wish to violate their own religious tenets by not engaging in same-sex marriages within these religious organizations. That is now in the bill. That's better. So the substance of the bill is better. The process by which the bill was debated and then ultimately voted on with alterations and amendments and that sort of thing, much better in the Senate, which is why this final product, heading back to the House, I think, is improved. Improved beyond something that I was tentatively in favor of to begin with. So that's good news. This is how I view it. Now, there's an argument that this is all redundant. Because, as I said, the Obergefell decision is the law of the land. Same-sex marriage is legal in every state, has been for years. Many people are now in those marriages. So why would you need a piece of legislation when there's a constitutional right determined by the Supreme Court? Well, after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade, which I supported, I think that was the right and overdue constitutional decision by the court. When that happened, you had some people freaking out, fear-mongering, trying to scare people, saying birth control is coming next. Same-sex marriage is coming next. That's on the chopping block. This right-wing court's going to strike down all these rights. If you read the Dobbs decision, Justice Alito went out of his way to say, actually, these other examples, this parade of horribles that people might talk about because they anticipated this, specifically does not apply to our reasoning at all. This is only about abortion for these very particular reasons. But because Justice Thomas, in his concurring opinion, at least evinced some sort of appetite of revisiting some of these other cases, there's like this five-alarm fire. These other things are coming next. Same-sex marriage is coming next. I don't think that's the case. I've explained why on the show before and in my writing. I've spoken to a number of top conservative legal experts and Supreme Court watchers who are unanimous in their belief that this court doesn't even have four votes to take a challenge to Obergefell. They don't even have the four votes to do that, which you need to take up a case and grant cert, let alone five or more to overturn Obergefell. It's not happening. However, if people are worried about it, and some people are very emotional, they don't really understand the inner workings of how policy and the Supreme Court work, and they've been convinced in some cases, I think, by cynical actors that all of this could be going away very soon. They're worried about it. There is still an opportunity for the legislative branch to legislate, to create a backstop. Just in case this thing that I think is not going to happen at the Supreme Court somehow did, in the future there would be legislation as a backstop where there would be some continuity and stability for same-sex couples. And they've done it again in, I think, like a modest and narrow way that is quite reasonable and acceptable to me. I'm up on a break, and I still want to make one more point and address the religious liberty side of this a little bit more. Let's take the break. I'll get to that next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
Back on the Guy Benson Show, just wrapping up some of my thoughts on the Respect for Marriage Act, now passed the Senate, heading back to the House. A lot of people that I generally agree with, elected officials, commentators, organizations where I am usually on the same side as them, they're coming out and saying, no, this is dangerous because of religious liberty concerns. And this will open people up to all these lawsuits like the Bakers and the florists, and they're not protected. I have said repeatedly that I think those people should be protected. I don't think that small businesses should be able to discriminate against gay people or LGBT clients just as a matter of course, denying them goods or services just because they're gay. But I think that there should be an accommodation, an opt-out, a carve-out for people not being forced to participate in gay weddings. Like live and let live needs to flow both ways, and I think that accommodation needs to happen. I think ultimately that's going to happen in the courts. I think the Supreme Court ought to do that soon and decisively. Some of the persecution and harassment against that cake maker, for example, in Colorado has gone on for years. It's outrageous. Let's protect conscience and First Amendment rights and also protect gay marriage. Both things can be done at the same time. This legislation, the Respect for Marriage Act, doesn't do that perfectly. It doesn't do it on a comprehensive level in every way that I would like to see and other conservatives as well. But I think that some of these lawsuits and legal battles predate even Obergefell, let alone this bill. They would continue whether or not this bill existed at all, as law or otherwise. I think the Supreme Court is going to have to resolve it. I don't think it's going to be ideally neatly resolved in this legislation. Now, you might say that's a good reason to oppose the bill. I disagree. I think that this is a fair-minded, good-faith effort to create the backstop and cause some peace of mind for folks. And also, I would say, take a fear-mongering talking point away from people trying to whip up all this anger and concern and worry among people, I think, for their own self-serving political reasons. This bill becoming law deprives some of those folks of their tools to be cynical and to mislead people. It's another positive element of this, I would say. Bring the temperature down on a hot-button issue a little bit. Get us back into sort of a space of more tolerance and like a bit of a truce on this issue. I think that would be a healthy thing. So if you look at the vote in the Senate, 61 to 36, that was the vote this week in the U.S. Senate. A handful of senators on both sides, one Democrat, two Republicans, didn't vote. But those 12 Republican senators voted yes. From more moderate to liberal Republicans like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski to Senators Burr, Tillis, Ernst, Portman, Sullivan, Young, all from pretty like mainstream conservative positions, reddish states, and even some senators from the most conservative states, most Republican states, Senators Blunt, Capito, Lummis, Romney, they were part of this coalition. And I think overall, as the House will take this back up, I am hopeful That the 47 Republicans who voted yes last time will vote yes again, and maybe some more people will join as well and put something of a conservative, a bigger conservative imprint on this path forward, which is not perfect and ideal in every way. But in my view, it's constitutional, fair, modest, reasonable, and therefore worthy of support. And that's where I come down on it. The Guy Benson Show, back after this.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Thank you so much for being with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge after the show every single day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media if you'd like. On Twitter and Instagram, our handle is the same, at Guy Benson Show. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink which is fantastic, delicious, and really growing in popularity. You guys are a part of that, and they bring us this final hour. We're always grateful for their sponsorship. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Check it out. See where they're sold near you. Just plug in your zip code. So many more locations now. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only, of course. And with us now is Martha McCallum, executive editor and anchor of The Story every weekday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox News, also Fox News Politics co-anchor author of the book Unknown Valor, a bestseller, and she's got her podcast, The Untold Story with Martha McCallum, also available at foxnewspodcast.com. Martha, great to have you back. Hi, Guy. Great to be with you. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? You're gearing up now for Christmas? Wonderful Thanksgiving, and, you know, Christmas is definitely in the air here in New York City. All the trees are lit, and um, it's good. Yeah, it feels pretty normal this year, which is a nice change, right? Big time. And I stepped outside today. It's now, of course, December. There is a chill in the air. We've got our Christmas lights up. I am now officially in the mood. If you didn't know, I'm a big Thanksgiving fan, and I get angry when Christmas encroaches too much on Thanksgiving. But as of December 1st, all bets are off. Christmas time, let's go. I'm the same. And I heard Jimmy Faye say, you know, yes, I love Christmas, but I'm not a psychopath. I don't listen to Christmas music until the day after Thanksgiving. That's right. (laughs) That's exactly right. So I'm glad that we're in agreement on this. Martha, I want to talk about something that happened on your show yesterday. You had John Kirby from the White House on, and you guys got into it a little bit, some sparks flying on what the White House is prioritizing in terms of their concern about misinformation, social media, big tech. Here's part of the exchange, cut 23. But why not say something to Apple? Because we were just told the other day that the White House is keeping an eye on Elon Musk and Twitter. So why would you say that from the podium? You didn't say it, but Karine Jean-Pierre said it. And not call Apple out for helping the Chinese government to suppress their own people's ability to communicate. Again, I think we've been very clear and consistent on this, Uh, certainly publicly. We've been very open about uh, our desires to be able to see citizens communicate. Uh, And, and, you know, Apple, uh, if this is a decision that they're making, then uh, they should have to speak to that. But uh, we, you know, we're not we can't and we aren't in the business of of telling private companies how to to execute uh, their their initiative. But Twitter's a private company, too. So why is Twitter getting one treatment and Apple's getting another is my question. Well, these are completely two different circumstances. You're talking about the potential. Well, you're talking about the uh, the potential for perhaps uh, foreign investment and involvement uh, in the management of Twitter. That's a different issue than what we're talking about here, which is a business decision by Apple with respect to how one of their uh, applications is being utilized. Certainly, they're getting influenced by by a foreign government, uh, and that government is China. And, Martha, there's also the TikTok issue, which the White House doesn't seem terribly concerned about. Obviously, there's Chinese fingerprints, CCP fingerprints all over that app. 
But it's like Twitter's in the doghouse. Apple, TikTok, we're not really going to talk too much about that. Totally different. Why ask the question? I don't really understand that beyond the lens of just like pure tribal ideological domestic politics. Well, unfortunately, that's the way it looks, right, based on the treatment of these two these two companies and TikTok as well. So it looks like they're kind of picking people that they feel aligned with and going after people who they don't. And I also just want to say, you know, I, I like John Kirby. I appreciate the fact that he comes on and he it never shies away from these conversations. And um, so I, I appreciate that. It's, there's nothing personal here. It's just when you watch the way that these two companies are being treated. And also one thing to clarify, Apple is a huge publicly held corporation, right? And, and there's always a national interest in, if there's a national security issue that surrounds a huge publicly traded company, it is, of course, fair game for the White House to reach out, to have a conversation or to have you know, some sort of oversight of that situation. We see it all the time. Um, so to say, oh, you know, that's a private company. We're hands off on that. They can do what they want in, in, the, you know, in the world of global economics. And yet to crack down on Elon Musk, who I pointed out, also did the exact opposite in Ukraine and in Iran, where he you know, used Starlink to help people make sure they could still communicate with each other, right. which right. you would think, given everything that, that uh, John Kirby's saying, would be something that they would encourage, because he's saying we want to make sure that people have the right to pe- peacefully protest around the world, and we support them in that. So to, to minimize people's ability to communicate on the ground in China in the middle of these protests seems like something that Apple should have to answer for. doesn't seem like such a tough thing uh, for the White House to to say, you know, to, to be on, on the right side up here. Yeah, but it's like, oh, well, it's a private company. And so far be it from us to meddle in that. That's not our role. That's not our job. But we will be all over Elon Musk. And whether it's the Treasury Secretary talking about it or questions and answers coming from the White House press briefing room, and now here's John Kirby doing the same thing. Just the standards here make absolutely no sense unless you just feel like it's an administration being governed by a very online lefty presence that they want to mollify and other things that don't really rise to that level in terms of outrage on the heavily online left. That's sort of something for someone else to think about. That's very much the appearance here, at least as I see it. Yeah, um, it is. And, you know, there's a new story today, which we're just starting to get a handle on, that was published by Forbes that says that TikTok, um, you know, through the Chinese state media, has been pushing divisive videos about U.S. politicians. This is Forbes reporting, but they're saying that TikTok accounts run by the propaganda arm of the Chinese government have accumulated millions of followers and tens of millions of views, many of them on videos editorializing about U.S. politics without clear disclosure that they were posted by a foreign government. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that we saw with the Russians in um, the election cycles in 2016 and, you know, in terms of pushing bots and different social media accounts. So th- this is this is a scary world of influencing people through government driven uh, bots and social media accounts. And it, it's, it's going to be tough for Elon Musk to get his arms around or anybody else. But we, we clearly have to figure out how this is going to be navigated because it's a really wild west. For sure. And what you just described, if the Forbes story pans out and it would follow in my mind that the Chinese would try this, that would be, would it not, foreign interference of a hostile regime in U.S. politics and U.S. elections? I mean, it seems like that should be a front burner, deep concern to the White House. But they kind of have tunnel vision here 
for Elon Musk and Twitter, not so much on the very serious allegations against Apple that you mentioned. And then the TikTok component of this that I brought up at the beginning and you just expanded on, it just feels like, and I'll just drive the point home one more time, the standards, the double standards here, or the non-existent standards here, are just totally baffling unless you are looking at administration that is driven only by immediate domestic politics, which is not a healthy thing in my mind. Yeah, and, you know, it, it also, there's this is such a huge subject, so I think it, you know, can get confusing for us covering it and, and for people who are listening to it as well. But, you know, I mean, one other thing I would mention, and I did ask John Kirby about this as well, is this Twitter executive coming out yesterday and saying, you know what, we were wrong to kibosh the story about Hunter Biden right before the yeah. election. I don't yep. feel right about it. It was We shouldn't have done it. We heard the same thing from Zuckerberg at Facebook. He said, you know, well, when the FBI calls you and they say we're concerned about this, you, you, you kind of want to make sure that you do what you can to not let that story be leveraged on social media right before an election. So, you know, when you've got this, and, and I asked John Kirby, you know, is the White House concerned at all about any communications that may or may not exist between Twitter and the White House or the FBI about that story and how it was handled. Oh, you know, he said, no, I don't know anything. You know, no, we're not. I don't know anything about that. Um, but that's what Musk is, is saying he wants to uncover the communications that were going around about killing that story. And that could reflect badly on some people. We don't know. We'll see where it goes. Oh, I'd be willing to bet that it does and that a lot of people are invested in that information not coming out. I think we deserve to see it given what they did, not just Twitter, but other organizations and other platforms with that Hunter Biden story. And Elon Musk is sort of straight up saying that there was election interference by Twitter in 2020. I mean, these are things that absolutely matter when we're looking at a broader perspective on the role of social media companies in elections. And if you only have blinders on and you only want to look at one component of it because that's what your fellow ideologues insist – upon and nothing else really matters, I think you then surrender your credibility on these broader questions, which I fear is what John Kirby was doing. And I agree with you, by the way, Martha, that I'm glad that he comes on your show and comes on Fox News and sometimes he'll punch it up and he'll say what he wants to say. And that's how things ought to go. I think more Democrats should come on Fox and answer tough questions. They often don't get tough questions a lot of other places. So kudos to him for doing it. But we also have the ability to criticize what he says. And to that point, He was on Fox and Friends yesterday, Kirby was. Ainsley Earhart, our colleague, asked him a question about the Afghanistan withdrawal. He gave an answer that just blew my mind, Martha. Cut 22. Listen to this. Let's talk about the Defense Department's annual report, because it is uh, saying that Biden's fumbled withdrawal from Afghanistan was a propaganda gift to China. Do you agree with that? No, I do not. Uh, And I don't know that that's the Pentagon's assessment that it was a propaganda gift uh, to to China. If anything, uh, nations like China and Russia took a look at what we did in Afghanistan. And we've talked about this many, many times over the last year uh, and and had to marvel uh, at the speed, the efficiency and effectiveness uh, that a very small number, a very small number of troops. Brian, you listen to me now. Hear me out. A small number of troops were able to move that many Afghans safely out of that country. Uh, No other nation in the world can do that. Martha, you could hear Brian Kilmeade jumping in, oh, please, which is my response, uh, probably more polite than my response would be in real time. The argument here from Kirby is that other countries like Russia and China look at the Afghanistan meltdown debacle and they marvel at how effective it was by the United States. We left billions of dollars in military equipment behind for terrorists to take. We left tens of thousands of allies that we promised to get out 
behind to be hunted down by terrorists. We left thousands of Americans behind after the president insisted that would never happen. To try to pretend like that was some sort of marvelous, incredible endeavor, I know that Biden himself called it an extraordinary success at the time. I don't know very many people who believe that, and I'm maybe not shocked, but I'm really disturbed to hear the White House sticking with spin that I think most honest brokers would say is just insulting, actually, on its face. Yeah, you know, it's it's an issue that I don't think has lingered in people's minds the way that perhaps it should. And so I think there's been some revisionist history discussion of what happened during that withdrawal. But I think you have to be honest. You have to talk about the things that were effective and, and the things that were that fell far short of being effective. And the things that fell short, far short of it, unfortunately, led to the loss of people's lives. And some of those people had helped us for years uh, in Afghanistan. And some of those people, including people like Riley McCollum, who you know was one of the 13 that was killed at the Abbey Gate, um, young servicemen and servicewomen with their whole future ahead of them who lost their lives because of the chaos that was unfolding there and the lack of safety and the lack of perimeter uh, and organization in the way that that withdrawal was handled. So, you know, I, I think there comes a time when you have to say, look, mistakes were made uh, and, and we accept them and we regret them. And I do think that it's quite clear that other countries took that debacle as an expression of what it looks like when the U.S. decides that they're not going to remain committed to something anymore. Yes. And so we say things about Taiwan right now, for example, and we say things about Ukraine. And I think our commitment has been, uh, you know, strong uh, to Ukraine. But you have to ask yourself, where is it going? Right. And we, we pulled out of Afghanistan on the on the suggestion or the reality that we had been there for so long and spent so much money and it wasn't going anywhere. And literally overnight, we sort of folded right in to this involvement in Afghanistan, which is also, I mean, in Ukraine, which is also costing billions of dollars. No U.S. troops on the ground in an official way at this point. But, um, you know, it, it just raises a lot of questions about what well, it was. It was chaotic, right? It was chaotic. Doing. It was incompetent. It was weak. Other countries took notice. And it's just actually, I think, frighteningly naive that this administration would say, well, actually, what our adversaries are doing is looking at the Afghanistan withdrawal and marveling at what a glowing success it was and how powerful we look based on what happened. It's just like an inversion of reality. And whether they truly believe it or not, they are saying it out loud, still saying it out loud. I think it's just a very poor reflection on a number of levels. Martha, stand by. Quick break here. I want to continue the conversation and shift to electoral politics. That's next with Martha McCallum here on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show happy hour. Martha McCallum is with us. Martha, thanks for sticking around. Last question. We are still sort of filling out the scorebook on the 2022 midterm elections. There's at least one House race still uncalled out in California because they're still counting out there, which is nuts to me. But we also have at least one announced candidate for president in 2024, Donald Trump. Seems like it starts earlier and earlier as you're looking ahead, not at 24, but just 2023. What's on your radar that you're going to be watching most closely as we start thinking about the new cycle that is already upon us? 
Yeah, I, I mean, A, it's shocking that we still have a race in California and a race in Colorado that aren't called. Uh, this really shouldn't be allowed. There's plenty of time to count those votes at this point and to do whatever recount might be necessary. Uh, the Colorado one is very, very tight. So get that done. That's your responsibility uh, as a state and as an election, a uh, group of election officials in those states. 2024, you know, the thing I'm thinking the most about right now, there was an interesting piece that Newt Gingrich wrote that was published, I think, this morning or maybe late yesterday talking about, you know, the reality of what's going on between Democrats and Republicans. And he's arguing that Republicans need to accept and understand uh, the midterm losses uh, and that the midterms turned out so dramatically differently than they expected. And they have to be honest about asking themselves why that happened and what they need to do moving forward. And so I think a real deep analysis of what's going on out there. Also, he says, look, you know, whether you like what President Biden's doing or not, you have to acknowledge that he's successful in his own terms, in terms of what Democrats want. And he is expanding the government. He is making us a more sort of, you know, socialist uh, style government where you see expanded, you know, I'm just watching right now, he's talking about the railway deal and how you have to have expanded paid leave for, for employees, right? These are ideas that some people would consider far from mainstream in a lot of ways in terms of expanding how much the government spends and takes care of people in the larger sense of the country. So um, I, I think there needs to be a very open, honest evaluation of where people stand in this country, what they yep. want the country to look like and be, and not just sort of rule past it for Republicans and say, oh, gee, that didn't turn out the way that we thought or anticipated, and dig deep and ask why, where, what is going on in this country? And I think that's the discussion and the focus that we need to have over the course of the next 18 months. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And Biden is still unpopular and the people aren't exactly clamoring for his agenda. But the punishment of his party at the polls that we were expecting materialized only sort of in a fractional way compared to what it could have been, probably should have been under the circumstances. And there are lessons that need to be internalized and then applied by Republicans moving forward. And the question is, will they? And we'll know soon enough because, as I said, it's already underway. Some big choices ahead. Martha McCallum, part of the team here covering all of it at Fox News. Martha, always great to talk to you. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. Take care. It's the Guy Benson Show. The happy hour rolls on right after this break. on the Guy Benson Show, and Will Kane was our guest earlier in today's program, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend. He had a few thoughts on a number of subjects, including LeBron James. Here's a part of my conversation earlier with Will Kane. Can you just explain the context of what he's talking about first, for people who don't know, and then we can talk about uh, LeBron's little tantrum here. Disappointed guy. The king is disappointed with his court. I don't know that I'd go so far as to say angry, but he is very, in the way a father is upset with his children, he is very disappointed. The context here is twofold. I'm sure your audience is familiar at some extent with the Kyrie Irving controversy where – and I don't even know that I have all the details nailed down, but Kyrie retweeted a video, a movie of some type that people have said is anti-Semitic, and then he didn't really apologize and wouldn't, I guess, give the – media, the response they thought it required, and then Kyrie had really most of the media establishment, and I can't remember how big the fallout went, fall down upon him. And I guess as part of that controversy around Kyrie, questions were asked of LeBron. 
Secondarily, the Washington Post reports last week there's this. Oh, and by the way, just emerges. briefly, just just to clarify, Kyrie Irving and that whole controversy was at least related to and involving an NBA player, which is what LeBron also That's is. Always, this is a player correct. in LeBron's league in his sport. And then you're about to talk about the Washington Post report in the NFL, a different sport. Correct. Um, and I'll tie them together, but I'll just add the detail. This one more important detail that that you didn't say there, which is. Kyrie and LeBron were teammates, not just yes. in the same sport, but they were teammates and at one point in life, friends. Now into the NFL, the background is that this report in the Washington Post shows a picture of Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys in Little Rock, Arkansas, in I believe the 1950s. It's 66 years ago where it is the integration of the school and the young black kids who are going into school that day for the first time are meeting a mob of it appears angry white kids blocking their path into school. It's not an image we've seen, but we've seen the type of image in the past from actually other high, another school in Little Rock. In that photo, sort of in the background, not amongst the, I'd say, half a dozen you know, boys up front with angry scowls on their faces yelling at these black kids, is Jerry Jones, sort of um, rubbernecking, craning craning his neck to see what's going on, watching his face showing no emotion. And from that, people have extrapolated a massive narrative that this explains why Jerry Jones has never hired black coaches or black head coach in the NFL, and it, it, it belies Jerry Jones' racism. My full interview with Will Kane and all of today's show available for free on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Producer Christine tried to do some online shopping, but being the technophobe Luddite that she is, it did not go quite according to plan, and now she's in a bit of a bind. Uh, this is an all-time classic. Details straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch Friday Eve on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is always free. The day after tomorrow is the big Christmas party at Guy and Adam's place. And we are doing our best to gear up for it. And we are just battening down the hatches for producer Christine, who's going to be there. But, Christine, I know that she had all sorts of ideas and suggestions for this party that she pretends that she's co-hosting without footing any of the bill. But she's got some other things now on her mind, some more immediate and urgent concerns based on a big online shopping order that she, well, thinks that she at least initially thought had achieved and executed properly. And then it turned out that she had bungled the whole thing in a way that, honestly, I had never heard of before. Leave it to Christine to find a new way to butcher technology and screw up her Christmas shopping online. All right, Christine, walk us through this. Okay, but after this, you have to promise me. First, um, at the end, I have breaking news, so we have to get to that. And then also, I have some ideas about our party that I just want to get in before tomorrow. So let's well, we can not start. our party, but go ahead. We could start. Sure. Whatever. We could start with um, – I'm not – should I not say the store that I bungled this? Because it wasn't their fault. This was no, all No, I me. think – no, this is all on you, so you should definitely mention them. 
<laughs> they were actually wonderful and helped me. Um, and I was getting very frustrated with them. Dan heard it. Uh, so I had done a huge target uh, online, you know, through the app order. A lot of presents for a lot of people. And I was wondering, it kept saying, I kept getting a notif- notification on my email, in my Gmail, saying, like, your pickup's ready, your pickup's ready. But I didn't, I kind of ignored it. And then I looked and I said, your target's pickup's ready, but I didn't, I didn't send it to a target. I thought I sent it to my house. And then I looked my target pickup order was ready in Hollywood, California, on Hollywood Boulevard. The entire order. Well, how? <laughs> how? How did this I happen? Hon- <laughs> I honestly don't know. Um, I had to call several, several times. We had to figure out a way. They couldn't like just directly ship it to me, so we had to cancel it item by item. Uh, what Bobby thinks happened is somehow I changed my home target to the Hollywood Galaxy target in Los How? Angeles. Like, you have to do these things. <laughs> they don't just happen accidentally. How did this happen? Do you not rem- Did you do this in your sleep? What happened here? Well, he said, you know what, Christine? We did go to Los Angeles in April. I said, but I never went to a Target there no, and that I, doesn't make any sense. It, it the fact that make you have been sense. to Los Angeles in the last year doesn't mean that all of a sudden <laughs> you default on the internet that your home target is in Hollywood. Yeah, like I don't think it would just do that on purpose, right? Well, no, of course not. I, I honestly have no explanation. If somebody could explain to me how that happened, other than maybe my fat fingers hit something, because you obviously but did you know you fill see my- out like when you had to go through and get the delivery. You know, there's like a delivery address. There's a billing address. Do you remember filling out your home address for both of those things or you just sort of like – Well, this is the problem also. I like hit save everything in my phone so I never have to like fill out things and Bobby's like that is the worst thing to do. Like he was in shock when he realized I have his credit card saved on so many websites so I don't ever have to like look at the credit card. It just says like do you want this when I hit yes and then it like just fills all the information and it saves it. And apparently that's like a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, operational security, big problem there. But also that doesn't explain <laughs> why you would have Hollywood, California. Like it would not default to that in your saved settings either. I, I, I don't know. Dan, I mean you were there witnessing me have like a full-on meltdown because I didn't know if I could get my money back. And I didn't know how I was going to get to Hollywood to obviously pick up this whole order. And it took a while. Dan, how long? I was on the phone for – possibly during the show but not possibly during the show oh no it was definitely during the show because this is i actually wanted to go here next before we hear from dan so the show ended yesterday and the home stretch was over and we were doing our little post-show chat about how the show went and the different segments and what do we got for tomorrow and you were talking about how long you had just been on hold on and off and i realized you were on the phone with target trying to fix your christmas gift screw-up situation Literally, while the show was on the air, the show that you at least ostensibly produce, quote unquote, as your job, like you have 21 hours a day where the show is not on the air, but you were using the three hours of our airtime to call Target to try to deal with the situation. Like, were you listening to the show at all? Could I have been like, oh, wow, that 
that thing that that person said was pretty outrageous. You'd have been like, oh, yeah, absolutely. When when our guest was dropping F-bombs, I remember that. Absolutely. Because you were probably the one dropping F-bombs on the phone to Target during your job. To be perfectly honest, and Dan, please attest this, I was on hold for a very long time to the point where I thought they hung up on me. So I was listening to the show and just sitting on hold, and then the lady – I don't know what happened. We got disconnected, so I hit the thing and called it back again. So I was most certainly listening to the show while I was on hold. I wound up staying even after the show to try to fix this. I was in full – Okay, normally I'm a very calm and collective person. Mm. Like, I don't freak out. Uh Uh-huh, just like you live in Hollywood, California. Those are equally true statements. I was really, really nervous about this one. I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, how how am I going to explain that hundreds of dollars have now been (laughs) – are placed in an order in Hollywood? So it it started off where she goes, (laughs) I'm sitting here, you know, doing the show as we do. On a daily basis. We also, all do, as we all... Right, right, right. right. Yes, right. So I'll, all of a sudden I hear, oh my God. <laughs> I thought I was going to have to like hit breaking news. I thought something happened. Like we're going to have to come into a segment and do something else. And she goes, I just sent my target order to California. I'm like, I, first of all, I don't even know how to deal with this right now. I have to listen to Guy Benson, our host, and run the show. Yeah, you're also doing your job. She's not only not doing her job, she's trying to distract you from your job, which is even more essential during those three hours. But then she 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 was on hold I for a while. I hope our bosses are listening, by the way. <laughs> oh, I called Wyatt good. in the middle of this, too. <laughs> oh, good. So you had the entire team. I'm surprised you weren't texting me. Like, hey, guy, we need to talk right now. Maybe go to break early. I've got a situation here. I guess I was the only person on this entire team, the one literally on the air, who was not being actively badgered by Christine about, and let's be clear, this is not a hyper-time-sensitive thing. Christmas is on the 25th of December. You were still in right. the month of November, and you were doing all of this in the middle of our show. This keeps getting worse. I'm not even sure if I should be angry or not. But all right, Dan, what happened next? So then she was on hold for a while, and then I believe I believe she called her husband, and he's like— Wait, That doesn't make it better. Like, oh, yeah. sweet, yes, thank you. Because while you're on hold, you're complaining and whining— to Dan and Wyatt, apparently. But Sam, and then please, I FaceTime Bobby. Yeah, too. and then she FaceTime Bobby. Bobby's like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I, you're going to have to Did Bobby mention, like, hey, aren't you on the air right now? Isn't that also maybe part of the thing with Bobby? Anyway, we have to get back to our reliable narrator here. Dan, what happened next? Um, and then so we had, our, we had our meeting, as you said. And then she was on the phone for quite a bit after that. And I don't know if it got resolved, um, so Christine can can handle that part. But it was fascinating. I don't know how one person does that. Um, I didn't know how to fix it because I don't know how it happens. I asked him multiple times to fix it, by the way. (laughs) You wanted Dan to do this for you. I think I asked him, like, so many times, what do I do? Can you fix this? What do I do? Can't confirm. I, I don't even know what to say. And then when you were on the phone with the Target woman, when you're like, oh, I just I just want a refund. Can you refund me the money? How does that work? Do you, like, put a bunch of cash into a box and then, like, connect it to a group of <laughs> pigeons that then fly across the country to your house? Is that how you think that works? I think so. I, I really don't know. But I have to say you have to get Wyatt on here because he was disgusted with me. <laughs> like, he didn't even want to talk to me. That's Wyatt's how, like, face. disgusted. <laughs> you should see Wyatt's face right now. I think the disgust is not over. I think the disgust is ongoing, as a matter of fact. Wyatt, okay, you were able to hide this from me because I could not tell that you were being harassed 
my producer Christine during the show about this problem, but apparently you were. Yeah, guy. So I mean, I don't know if you notice. Sometimes I get a phone call during the show, mm-hmm. and I, it's on the on this phone in here, as you can see. The and I just sometimes duck down in my my chair just to just to hide my face to what is being explained to me. And this this time <laughs> yesterday was was a all timer, and um, I don't know. I just don't know how that happens, Christine. Um, but I think next time, well, actually this weekend, I, I could maybe help you and we can set up some of the, like, you know, the, the safety things you put on your phone, like the, to make sure that you check before what you're doing. And we could, we could have a little text section, uh, this Good weekend. Luck. Good luck with that. How much time do you have? Christine, did you get your money back? Did you get the packages rerouted? What happened? Uh, so I had to cancel everything like item by item. Um, it looks like it's refunded. Bobby has to check the credit card because he's he now blocked me from like looking at anything from the credit card. So he's, he wasn't happy. So uh, now I'm getting it all sent here. It says that it was canceled and reordered, but it was it was a to do, and nobody's happy with it. I'm me. just surprised it was actually Target and not some scam. Like Target with an e on, another E on the end or something like that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and she got taken for a ride and, and bought something from a completely fake company. That's what, You know gone. what? I've never been scammed. You would think I would have sent money to like a prince somewhere by now. Yeah, Nigerian you? prince. Well, and, and you almost got scammed by the palm reader or whatever it was. The, no, who was no, that? no. You can't count that. My, the, psych, the Times Square psychic. The psychic. She the psychic knew my Times dad is, died. She, no, no, she knew. It's no. a scam. It's a scam, a scam, and you were willing to be scammed, and just by the grace of God, you didn't get scammed. But, yeah, I, I'm surprised that you haven't been scammed. You're, you are a ripe, ripe target for exploitation, financial or otherwise. And so, I mean, it'll come. If, if this reckless behavior continues, Christine, it'll come one day, and then Bobby will really, I don't know what he'll have to do, lock down all of your finances. He'll have to get you one of those, like, debit cards that they give to irresponsible teenagers – that's probably the next step here. Oh, At gosh, least he didn't don't... find out about this on the air, because usually he finds out about this kind of thing during this exact segment. When he's on the bus listening to it, and his, I could just imagine his face getting redder and redder. I guess you fessed up on this one. Christine, we're almost out of time. You said that there's some sort of breaking news that you wanted to share with us before we go. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, and one more thing. Is there – can we have some sort of punch with a punch bowl and, like, a ladle and, like, the little cups for the party? No. I always wanted no, to go to a Christmas party with punch. We're not doing punch because you've already confessed that you're showing up with a flask, and Christine's going to sidle up to the punch bowl and just whip <laughs> out the flask and slowly but surely dump her booze in there. I don't know, to get other people liquored up, although she would probably want to hoard for booze now that I come to think of it. No, we're not doing punch. I think it's actually like a little bit gross, like a giant punch bowl that everyone's drinking out of. We will have individual servings of wine, beer, and long drink. And okay, that's the end All of it. All right. And I just want to say uh, for now on, I, I will not bother the staff during one of Cookie's many, many meltdowns. I'll wait till 6.01. Yep, six, I think six, that, that Six, maybe on the dot and 30 seconds. I don't know if I that's can wait until 601. Just not we'll, we'll during the wait. show. Is and that your breaking just, news that you're no, going to commit no, I just to doing your clar- job? No, I just want to clarify that for the bosses that's listening. Uh, uh-huh. The breaking news is tomorrow. You don't even know about this at all. Tomorrow, C. Diddy will be back. I, Along what does that with, mean? What does that mean? 
along with her sidekick, YY the Clown. I have something in the works. I am uh, writing, producing, and making the entire staff join in on. And uh, I look forward to tomorrow. Wyatt looks like he wants to curl up in a corner and disappear right now. (laughs) The look of shame on his face that he's aware of this and participating in any way, Mm -hmm. it's just written all over his face, Christine. You're just a bad influence again. I don't know what to say. I can't believe this show actually makes it on the air every day. (laughs) Given the executive producer that we have, and I put those in air quotes. Wow. Well, hopefully we'll have a show tomorrow, Friday, same time, same place, and we'll have a big, jolly party on Saturday, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that on Monday. So, so much more content coming your way. You never know what's coming on The Guy Benson Show, especially in this segment. Regardless, thank you for listening. Have a great night. And when you order something online, make sure that it's actually going to the destination where you live or where you want it to be, not a random store, brick-and-mortar location halfway or fully across the country. That's my PSA to close out the show tonight. Talk to you tomorrow, I guess. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.